This is your award-winning BCFM on 93.2, 24 hours a day. Good morning and welcome to BCFM and One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show here on BCFM. We um, are here on BCFM. My name is Shona Gemfrey. I am presenting the show for several months while the amazing Penny Southgate has a bit of a well-deserved rest and relaxation. Uh, we have a jam-packed show for you today. We have not one but two interviews. Uh, we've got one later coming up later in the show with Rich Felgate, who is a journalist who got arrested during the coronation celebrations a few weeks ago for filming Just Stop Oil Protesters. So we'll be coming on to that a bit later. But in the studio today, we have Danica Priest from the Friends of the Western Slopes, uh, who's going to tell us all about their campaign to prevent housing being built on some very valuable ecological spaces in South Bristol. Good morning, Danica. Thanks for having me. Morning, how are you? I'm good, thanks. Brilliant. Well, we are going to play um, some tunes later. Um, we will get straight into our news roundup, um, settling for what is sure to be an interesting hour. Uh, we'll get straight into our news roundup and then we will go straight to talking to Danica. So um, our headlines this week, uh, the first one I've picked is from The Guardian. It, it says, water firms to pay £15 billion to shareholders as customers foot the sewage bill. You may have seen this in the headlines this week after intense criticism of water companies from campaigners and politicians over the routine dumping of raw sewage into rivers and coastal waters over many years. The industry body, Water UK, last week made a public apology on behalf of England's privatised water industry. Okay, sounds good so far. Stay, hold on. Uh, we have listened and have an unprecedented plan to start to put it right, said the chair of Water UK. The problem can't be fixed overnight, but we're determined to do everything we can to transform our rivers and seas. Companies promised a tripling of investment this decade to £10 billion to cut sewage spills, upgrade treatment plants and build new storage facilities. But the plan has been criticised because Water UK has admitted the entire cost of the project will ultimately be borne by customers. This wouldn't be so bad, except that they are also planning to pay £15 billion to shareholders. Um, at the same time, on average, 23.5 million householders will pay £425 more um, up to 2030 to pay for this investment to fix the sewage system. This is on top of an increase of £624 to fund dividend payments in the same period. English water companies will pay an estimated £14.7 billion in dividends, so that's to their shareholders, by the end of this decade, while making customers pay for a new investment to stem this tide of sewage pollution in seas and rivers. That's an analysis for the observer. So yeah, this has been a big campaign. Surfers Against Sewage, I know, had a big protest at the weekend. Maybe you saw uh, pictures of them. I saw a picture of an inflatable poo emoji to draw attention to it. But yeah, that uh, sounds pretty atrocious. Um, and probably another example of, uh, you know, uh, priv privatisation not working. Other local news, an appeal against Bristol Airport expansion has been refused. This is a headline in Bristol 24-7. An appeal by a local campaign group to halt the expansion of Bristol Airport has been refused by a judge on the grounds that it stands no real prospect of success. This is the latest stage in a long-running legal battle that has been raging since 2018 when the airport proposed plans which would see passenger numbers increase from 10 million to 12 million and flights would increase from about 10,500 a year to almost 86,000 flights a year, so you know, almost uh, eight times as many. 
Responding to the decision on Twitter, the Bristol Airport Action Network said the government had ignored the views of the local community. Um, uh, this now gives Bristol Airport the opportunity to go ahead with its expansion plans, ignoring the views of local communities and democratic institutions. The uh, campaign group has warned they will continue to fight the plans. They will. Um, we know that Bristol Airport has plans for further expansion, they say. They want to expand to cater for up to 20 million passengers a year. And we will be vigilant for their next planning application with a view to be ready to resist their ambitions to expand further. Why is that important? Well, another final headline for this week. This one is from the BBC. Uh, global warming is set to break key 1.5 degree limit for the first time. Our overheating world is likely to break a key temperature limit for the first time over the next few years, scientists predict. Researchers say there's now a 66% chance we will pass the 1.5 degree global warming threshold between now and 2027. If the world passes the limit, scientists stress that the breach while worrying at the minute will be temporary. Hitting the threshold does mean that the world is 1.5 degrees warmer than it was during the second half of the 19th century before fossil fuel emissions from industrialization really began to ramp up. And breaking the limit for even just one year is a worrying sign that warming is accelerating and not slowing down. The 1.5 degree figure has become a symbol of global climate change negotiations. Countries agreed to pursue efforts to limit global temperature rises to 1.5 degrees under the 2015 Paris Agreement. Going over 1.5 degrees every year for a decade or two would see far greater impacts of warming, such as longer heat waves, more intense storms and wildfires. Um, so scientists say that there is still time to restrict global warming by cutting emissions sharply. Brassing the level once doesn't mean that the power limit has been broken, but it is a worrying sign. And will our governments do what needs to be done to cut them? Things not always looking promising. Danica, lots of news there. Do you have any thoughts on any of that? It's one rather depressing, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, um, it's a mixture of, you know, I'm, I'm glad that they are actually doing something about the soup, water sewage. But yeah, the uh, obviously the fact that ordinary people are going to have to pay for that. And oh yeah, the airport news has been quite uh, demoralising because I know lots of local activists worked really, really hard against that. Yeah, it's really depressing when you work really hard on a campaign. We had this with Brislington Meadows, and then you feel like you've made a really great case and you can't see it going wrong, and then the planning inspector just overturns that. Yeah, yeah, we were, ta- we were talking to Duke about Brislington Meadows a few weeks ago, and yeah, um, it, it is really demoralizing. Um, but there is sometimes, sometimes it does work, and I think this probably leads quite nicely onto. You telling us about uh, the Friends of Western Slopes campaign, which has had some successes. Um, So, yeah, tell us, first of all, where the Western Slopes are and why they're important. Sure, they're in uh, Knoll West, uh, which is South Bristol, um, kind of between uh, Novers Hill and Hartcliffe Way. And it's this just really amazing, untouched piece of nature. Um, Horses are there now, and they come up to the fence, and and you can see them if you're walking along Novers Lane. Um, And it's just this piece of wild like if you ever go on to there it's like you're just transported into another world you forget that you're in the middle of, of Bristol um, in the middle of No West um, and it's just a really special place for the community and it's been a special place for for hundreds of years yeah and it's not only so No West is one of the most deprived areas in Bristol isn't that right it is and it's been ignored by the council and a lot of things so I think this is a really great example of the community coming together and saying no we won't be spoken over we won't be ignored we want to keep our nature spaces we deserve to have nature access too 
Yeah. And so, but why is it ecologically important? You know, a bit of grass is nice, but, you know, at the end of the day, maybe isn't it just grass? Can't we just plant some more grass somewhere else? So we've got 11 out of the 17 bat species, and um, that's because it's also really rich in vertebrae. So it's a whole ecosystem. So the horses there have dung, which has dung beetles and other uh, insect species that then the horseshoe bats feed off of. Uh, and because it's so dark, um, horseshoe bats are really sensitive to light. So it's horseshoe really dark at night. Horseshoe bats are quite rare. Are they, are they a bit rare? Yeah, bit... greater horseshoe bats are the, are the rarest. We have lesser and greater on the western slopes, but the greater horseshoe bats are quite rare. So this is, yeah, it's an important species to protect. Yeah, and there's birds of prey as well, is Yes, that right? birds of prey, lots of invertebrates and, and um, mammals as well. So. Yeah. And hedgerows, and remind us why hedgerows are important. Because um, they're really species rich and they're great for connectivity. So a lot of species travel along them. Bats and, and birds use them to kind of travel safely and, and hide and nest as well. Birds nest in them. Okay, so tell us a bit about this story. So these the, these grass, these, these meadows, these grassy slopes have been here for hundreds of years. And why did they sort of come to attention? When did they sort of come under threat? Um, so the land is two-thirds owned by the council and one-third owned by a private uh, individual. And that private section has about every 20 years had an uh, application and the communities fought it. Um, but recently... Um, a planning application, a plan to, application to, to, yeah. to build on it. Yeah. Right. Um, but then in the last local plan, the council put in their section as well um, and wanted to build about total 700 homes on the site. So this was this was only a few years ago, was it, that the council yeah. said, OK, we have we own this land. We want to build houses. Let's build 700 or so houses on this site and put that in there and, and remind us what a local plan is and why it's important. So the local plan is sort of the document from the council that says, here's the sites that we plan to build on for the next five to 10 years um, or however long the, the plans are for. So technically, if a site isn't in the local plan, it isn't supposed to be built on, um, but it doesn't always work that way. So it sort of, and it allocates, it's be like, okay, the, these these spots are sort of protected and these spots can be built on and these spots are up for development if people want to develop them. Yeah, it's kind of the guidance that says, this is how many homes we need, here's where we're going to build them, here's our plans. Okay, so uh, a few years ago, the council said, right, we're going to build about 700 homes on this land. And so what then what happened? So the community got together um, and said, we don't want you to build here. And this is a really important space for nature. And we were just told this is a done deal. You have no chance. You, you know, your best chance is to work with us to make sure that the mitigation this happens. What, this is what council people were telling you. Yeah. And we were re writing to the council, to the, the Gorham Homes, to the mayor. And we were getting the exact same, literally the exact same copy and paste response back that, you know, this is a done deal. Housing is really important and you just need to be quiet basically okay so how did what happened next so we've there's a facebook group that formed and we got about a thousand people within just within six months um and we took to social media and did a lot of research um uh, and got planning advice and and um went to meetings of, with Noel west future which is kind of the planning group in Noel west as well um and just really educated ourselves and fought back and um the council did eventually listen to us and, and realize this was a really important space for nature that needed to be protected and you were saying to me off air something about there was a, there was a particular ecology the council had because they have to do their own ecology reports and their own ecology report what you discovered it someone discovered it and was like oh actually 
this says that it can't be built on. Is that right? Yeah. So when the site was coming up for um, uh, placement in the local plan, in the last one that was adopted, um, the council's um, ecologist did um, surveys and opinions of the uh, sites. And her report for this was very clear. It actually said this is an irreplaceable habitat. The damage done can't be reversed. Um, This is nationally significant for invertebrates. And I recommend that you take this out of the local plan. Um, Actually, the Environment Agency and Avon Wildlife Trust also objected, um, and those were all ignored. So, and so, so then you rediscovered the report, and you went to the council. You as a group went to the council and said, "Your own report says you shouldn't build on this." And what did they say? They first tried to ignore us, um, and we said, "Look, all these experts—you know, your own ecologists, the Environment Agency, Avon Wildlife Trust—they all disagree with this, and they're, you know, the experts in this area." Um, but eventually, you know, we got so many people behind us um, that, and we also got a, a motion passed um, in September 2021, I believe, it was a Green Spaces motion. Um, we helped um, put that uh, forward and get that passed. Well, what does the Green Spaces? Is that so that's a motion that the council itself voted on? Yeah, it was Richard Eddy was. The, the councillor, he's a Bishopsworth councillor, and he put that forward. And then the Greens put an amendment that specifically uh, mentioned Western Slopes, um, and it passed unanimously. And, and that protects specific areas within the city, is that right? Um, it, it protects, it says green belt and green spaces. And so all um, green belt and green spaces that are important for either ecology or leisure should not be built on, and we should do a brownfield first um, policy in Bristol. Makes a lot of sense. Um, But yes, and the ecology report, because I think you said to me that that was from 2012. So it was a while ago. So did the, so the council, were they, were they okay with that? It was being like, okay, right. We we forgot about it. Oh, okay. They they wanted a new report. They said that was outdated. So they wanted a new report. So they commissioned a new uh, ecological survey. Okay. What did that say? It said exactly what we've been telling them. That's the same thing. Okay. (laughs) And so, and so now, and so now they have agreed, okay, we're not going to build on it. And it's good. That is going to be taken out of the next local plan. And, and, and we're not going and it's not going to be up for building on it won't be up for discussion yeah, so for the foreseeable future yeah. how, how often do the local plans get done it's every few they're years supposed to be about every five years but it's this has been a longer one I think because there's been the um spatial plan with weka that fell apart so okay okay so okay so that's that i mean that's great so you when i mean how did how did you guys over you must have had like a party or something or like a celebration we on the, did we, when we you mean were, I cried we all oh. cried we, we were you know because we'd put so much work and we'd been told for so long that we were wrong when we knew we were right you know kind of felt like being gaslit being told this place wasn't ecologically important we knew it was um so is that that relief of being listened to as well to feel like we made a difference but yeah. there's also that sense of okay we've won this battle but there's still a war like it's not over yet it feels like it's it's never over so what's happened at the minute with so that was the council section but you said one third of the slopes are privately owned what's happening with that so an application was submitted for that site in October 2021 um, and it still has not come to committee um, but we're yeah we're waiting for it to come to the planning committee for a decision okay so the people who own the site have put in an application saying we want to build homes on this site um, and now it has to go to the council, uh, the council's committee, where the councillors who are on the planning committee will vote on it. And how do you think that's going to go? Are you worried about it? 
we're not we're more worried about an appeal but even then at the moment as it stands transportation has objected so the council's transportation officer has said i object to this because it's unsafe and that's a very hard thing to overcome even in an appeal even in a because like with brisington meadows this site is currently in the local plan and that's really hard to overcome an appeal but if it's said to be unsafe then hopefully that hope that should you know so be they're saying to actually actually having the extra traffic around in the building going on around the site would be dangerous dangerous is what the transport um, there's access issues so that the hedgerow is actually protected um, in, in 1970 the council protected it as a town and village green so even the council can't remove that protection um, to for access that they have to apply to the secretary of state for that um, and they have to offer um, equal land in uh, return um, so there's that issue and there's also they want to make uh, novers hill one way so, which would cause all sorts of problems. It's already like a really unsafe road and they want to put a cycle path that doesn't have any barrier in it. So that, you know, it, it's a really bad plan, just overall yeah. very unsafe. So that, yeah, I'm sure cyclists would not be, not yeah, be It's happy a very about valid this. objection. Like it's not just a, a, you know, personal opinion thing of this one transport guy saying this is a very unsafe development. Please don't, you know, this is why I refuse. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. So, okay. So for, as far as we know, touch wood, cross fingers, the friend, the western slopes are currently safe and hopefully will continue to be safe for at least the foreseeable future. You know, maybe we'll have to go through all this again in another few years when the next local plan comes up. But for now, it's it's safe. And that is due to, you said like there's a thousand people in this Facebook group. And what, you know, so it's real people power in action. What, what are the different roles that you've all been doing in the campaign? Um, some of us do a lot of the freedom of information requests kind of um, behind the scenes. Um, I, I do a lot of the social media and c complaining, basically. <laughs> I'm really loud about everything. Um, there's one uh, really lovely woman named Fran who does all the banners. So she makes banners and puts them out. Um, yeah, I've seen pictures of them. Yeah. yeah. And then, and there's also, you have people to go through the ecology reports, because I, I wouldn't know where to start with those, whether they were valid or not, but you've got people who are good at that, at breaking it down. Yeah, and, and Manor Woods Valley Group has been helping us with that as well. Um, Peter from Manor Woods Valley Group is a retired ecologist, so he does really great uh, uh, report scrutiny. Amazing. Okay, so on what what else is next? So I, I know, obviously, the yew, yew tree farm, that you were, we were talking about hedgerows, and I know that that's been an ongoing drama. What's the latest with that? So the latest with that is we're going to seek legal advice and challenge that because at the moment the council has made an error um, they didn't respond in time and gave the wrong response to the landowner's application for removal of an ancient hedgerow um, and because they made a mistake it automatically approves and they said their hands are tied which we don't agree with um, we also feel like the applicant made um, kind of an error in their report because they said that they had no access and that's why they needed to put this gate in and, and remove the hedgerow but they, there is a gate um, um, it's just on, you know, the border of, of Utree Farm. So they do technically have access if they wanted it. And Utree Farm is important because it's the last working farm in Bristol. Is that right? Yeah, it's the last working farm and it's a very organic, sustainably farmed um, farm. Um, and the meadow that this landowner owns is an SNCI and has a potentially new insect species on it. So What? A yeah. new insect? Well, like an, a previously, a really rare one? A previously undiscovered one? Previously undiscovered. Um, they've sent it off to like experts in Germany, I believe, is where it is at the moment. Um, but the, the ecology expert that did the survey had 
never seen it before. Um, and no one's seen it yet. No one said we know what this this grass fly is. So oh my goodness, that's so exciting. Yeah. So we might have a brand new the, the Bristol grass fly. We might have a brand. It's new really one. funny description as well because it, the what makes it unusual is its genitalia. So that's the, <laughs> the, the description that the ecologist said. So it's grass fly with unusual genitalia found. <laughs> oh my goodness, I did not know that. That's amazing. Um, okay, so so the tree, so the farm, um, the person, who, the people who own the la- land that the hedgerow is on, are trying to get it removed so that they can build on this particular um, very valuable spot, um, which, I, from what you're saying is is protected anyway like they shouldn't be able to build on it anyway. yeah so it's green belt mm. which gives it protection it's not in the local plan at the moment um and it's not going to be in the future local plan so there's no weight there um it has snci designation um and well, it has what, all does these, that, what does that um, mean site of nature conservation interest okay. so it's like a step below sssi which is site of scientific interest or something like that okay all right, so so the so the landowner put in an application to take out the hedgerow so that they could access the site better. Um, the council didn't get back to them within the agreed time, and so it automatically the council were like automatically said, okay, yeah, you can do it. Because um, this made headlines last week or so because I know that the mayor then was unhappy, very very unhappy that that had sort of been a that that had been dropped, that ball had been dropped, and now, um, so um, so they they turned up at the hedgerow ready to to tear it out. Is that right? Yeah, that happened in April because with a hedgerow removal application, it's supposed to be made public, and you're supposed to be able to object just like any other planning application. But it never was, so nobody knew about any of this other than the landowner and the council until they just showed up. So they showed up saying we have permission, and uh, Catherine, who's the the farmer at U Tree Farm, says no, you don't. <laughs> and um, the rest of us were, you know, a lot of us were knew about the um, SNCI status. So we said, you don't have permission. This is an SNCI. This is an ancient hedgerow. What are you doing? Um, so it was a bit of a standoff and, and they luckily did leave without doing any damage but it was like a bit of an impromptu traffic yeah. jam <laughs> from what traffic I heard. Jam, yeah <laughs> wow okay so so they I mean so as far as yeah the the procedures weren't correctly followed in that this wasn't publicly done so is that that's so now you're looking to legally challenge that this wasn't properly done and the community didn't have a chance to object yeah, and it was just a lot of incompetence in general, and we don't believe that incompetency should mean you should get your way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think it's a, a good a good metaphor for life. Um, okay, wow. So that is um, yeah, that that's a lot of very exciting stuff going on. It sounds like it's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster as well. It really has. I'd like to be less exciting in the future, <laughs> just nice and boring and, and happy. You're like, I just want to go touch the grass. Yeah. I just want to go look at the horses and look at this new strange grass fly. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't, I want to stop spending my time looking through all the paperwork. But this is really encouraging because, like you and the rest of the group together, have so far prevented at least two thirds of the site, probably more from being built upon. So that is, which is, um, in you were saying that this is also part of the core grassland network. Is that right? Yeah, so the West England Nature Partnership did kind of a survey to map out um, the nature important sites in all of Weka, and they did like a core grassland um, survey. And this is part of that. And of all the core grasslands in South Bristol, most of them are at risk of being developed over. So it's really important to save them. 
Yeah, because um, Brislington Meadows is another one of those, yeah. isn't it? Got yeah, Brislington Meadows, Ashton Vale, which has outline permission as well. Um, uh, Western Slopes, um, there's like a little bit in, I think, Elsbit Road as well, which has planning permission or um, is going to be in the local plan. Just all these spaces. Yeah, and and that's important because uh, you is something about a wildlife corridor is that right these these meadows they're very easy to build on aren't they but they yeah, are yeah like that's why wi- we've lost 97 percent of our uh, grassland wow. habitats um uh, in the past like 50 years so they're, it's, they're so easy to build on it's it's a field and it's really easy for someone to just say oh it's just a field it's it's not important but actually these are where a lot of species forage um it's where you get a lot of wildflowers and pollinators and the a lot of these spaces are connected to each other so they're used as wildlife corridors so like bats and badgers and birds will you know breed in one site and then forage in another site and and um you know use other sites to travel so yeah so it's all interconnected yeah, yeah. so like you know the bats in manor woods valley are the same bats in in the western slopes and and you know a new tree farm yeah amazing so if people are interested if they want to get involved and follow what's going on and help out how can they do that um, joining uh, the Friends of the Western Slopes Facebook group is probably the best way to get information about Western Slopes. Um, we'll have information about when the planning application comes to committee. Uh, you can still object to it as well. It's still live on the planning portal. So this is the application on the private section yeah. of the slopes. Yeah, so that is still on the planning portal, which you can get to through the council website. Is that right? Yeah, you can get through the council website or we have links to it on the Facebook page as well. Okay, so you can go on there and you can write an appli- uh, objection as a sort of concerned resident, concerned citizen, you can say, yeah. I don't agree with it because of X, Y, and Z. So, and that's helpful to sort of show the sheer weight of public feeling behind it. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So follow, so that's, they can find you on Facebook at Friends of Western Slopes and follow you on Twitter at, what's the Twitter handle? Uh, it's Friends and then W-E Slopes. <laughs> Friends W-E Slopes to get updates from that. Um, amazing. Well, is there anything else you want to, you want to, say but thank you so much Danica for coming in thanks for having me anything else you want to leave us with no not really it's been great to just kind of talk about grasslands because not everyone (laughs) wants to hear about them and I keep on talking about them so (laughs) and it's the thing it's like it's not glamorous but it is really important for nature for biodiversity and just which we know then is important for the health of the planet as a whole so yeah well fingers crossed that um yeah that that all goes okay and good luck with the uh, legal challenge as well for the how can people follow along with the yew tree uh, hedgerow drama if they want to help out with that um you can follow Catherine on twitter or yew tree farm has a facebook page and this will be a lot there um also bristol tree forum keeps everyone um updated with everything so following bristol tree forum on all their social media is a good way they've got a blog as well amazing great and so to finish off you picked a song for us didn't you so do you want to introduce this sure this is um one of my favorite songs i'm a huge clash fan but especially the lyric in it that um, let fury have the hour anger can be power you know that you can use it is something that i kind of live by it's kind of using your anger to, to make change so that's why i picked this song all right and this is uh clash and clamp down this is bcfm And so now we're joined again by Rich Felgate, a regular listeners to the programme may remember that Rich came and spoke to us a few weeks ago about 
his new documentary, Finite, the Climate of Change. And Rich was, well, arrested during the coronation celebrations in London whilst just trying to film climate protesters as a journalist. We wanted to, yeah, check in with him, get him back on and sort of see how he is. So, Rich, thank you for coming back and speaking to us again. Hi, thanks for having me. Yeah, do you just want to tell us a bit about what happened? Because I saw a clip of it on social media, but it all looked very intense and very fast. Okay, so the the background is that I'm I'm working on a, a documentary following the the activist group Just Stop Oil. As you'd expect to make a a, a documentary, I'm there with Just Stop Oil quite often when when they do protests. Yeah, it would be a bit of a a boring film if, if yeah. I wasn't if I wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. So yeah, as as part of that, I was with a, a small group of Just Stop Oil supporters um, along the coronation route, um, just amongst the the crowds on, along the pavement. They were just kind of waiting for events to get to get going um, to basically hold up some banners along the the side of the. The root of the the coronation banner saying "Just Stop Oil" to basically exercise their their right to protest. And whilst, as far as, far whilst, as you're aware, they were they weren't planning on disrupting the procession in any way. It was merely to hold up these banners, obviously using kind of the media attention as a way to draw attention to the the protest to the demands of reducing our reliance on fossil fuel. Yeah. I, to be honest, I think the protesters knew that they didn't need to do anything disruptive in order to to get a lot of attention, which is they've been they've been proved right. <laughs> yeah, um, they sort of knew there'd be a lot of TV cameras around, a lot of press attention from across the world. So they knew they didn't. They knew they just needed to hold up these banners, and that would get the attention they needed. Yeah, and and to kind of to highlight the the far-reaching kind of repressive nature of the the public order bill the public order act which had been brought in you know just the day before the the coronation so i think their 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 aim was to make people see um how protest is is under threat by by exercising a a legal right to protest yeah and show how just how many powers the police have to to limit that rather than you know doing something very controversial very disruptive which would i guess in some ways justify these these police powers they wanted to show that there was overreach by doing something non-disruptive the kind of bread and butter of protesting which is holding up a banner yeah and these these police powers as you say they've only just been brought in i mean a lot of human rights groups and activist groups have been drawing attention to just how oppressive they are. Um, but obviously, yeah, obviously the Conservative government have, have brought them in. And well, well, I guess we'll hear in a minute from you about how that, yeah, how that panned out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, how it panned out for me was just that basically by by being associated with the, the group of Just Stop Oil protesters, police basically arrested me through kind of guilt by association but what's what's interesting is that police approached the the group before they'd even started protesting so it was quite clear that they'd been identified as as people that are 
known to be involved with with just stop oil and just for that fact through the new policing powers there's power to to stop and search people with with no real suspicion so police surrounded me and the others and searched us looking for articles to, to commit criminal damage they didn't find anything um, i just had my camera equipment and my press card which i showed to them immediately but despite not finding anything to commit criminal damage police still proceeded to arrest everyone in including you and including as you know journalists are meant to be sort of neutral parties in these things because it's part of a, having a free press is that they're meant to be able to document what's going on whether people agree with it or not exactly and the system that the police are meant to to work to which is it, it, it's their own system that they participate in um, is press cards so there's the national um, uh, the UK press card authority which you know only issue um, press cards to legitimate members of the media and you know the police agree that that's how it works and therefore they have to respect uh, journalists uh, accredited journalists that, that have a press card and you know let, let them get on with their work such as documenting protests however the in my case the police just completely ignored that and decided decided to arrest me just for being identified as, as part of a group through the fact of just, just standing with people that I was going to film. Yeah, even though you yourself weren't planning on holding up any banners, you were there to film them, to film the general crowd and the coronation, as many other journalists were also there to film what was going on. Um, but because you were standing near them and filming them, the police arrested you as well. Exactly, that, that's right. So what, what happened what happened next? So I was taken to the police station, held in custody for about 18 hours. Um, oh my goodness. So it, yeah, it took a long time to get the chance to speak to a solicitor. Um, and then eventually I got questioned by the police and have then been released under investigation. Do they, have they told you what you're sort of under suspicion of, of doing? So I, I was arrested for conspiracy to cause a public nuisance, which is part of the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Act, which was quite controversially passed last year, which gives police new powers to, to clamp down on, on protests. And this definition of, of public nuisance is very... It's very vague and it's very far-reaching. So it basically means that if police think that someone might do something which causes significant disruption, then they have the power to, to arrest people. That's, that's seen as a, a crime. But you know what, what constitutes serious disruption um, or serious annoyance? And also how... It means that just by the fact of having something like a like a banner with a, a political slogan, which is quite clearly going to be used for some kind of protest, then that can mean that the protesters' charge of public nuisance is is so vague that you know, almost any kind of protest can be. If if the police want to characterize something as disruptive, then then they can basically. 
I mean, what do you think has kind of led to this, led to what is the government's reason behind this, do you think, or why the restrictions have become so much more draconian around protest, or they're trying to prevent it? Well, I think we're told that these anti-protest laws have been brought in to protect the public from inconvenience because of disruptive protests that we've, we've seen a lot of in recent years. But I think in, in reality, on the ground, it's protecting the government from inconvenience, from basically people in power from, from inconvenience by restricting the freedom of speech of people who want to, to challenge them, to criticise them. So we've seen that um, these laws being used against protesters just exercising their, their right to protest, not actually disrupting anyone. What, what did the police say when you told them that you were a journalist, that you were just filming? So the, initially the police did, did question whether they should be searching or arresting someone with a, with a press card, but they did actually radio up to an officer higher up in the, the chain of command. And they, they got the order from above to still still pursue me, to still arrest me. And and then when sort of questioned later in the station, when they were what did they how did they justify it or did they acknowledge it at all? I haven't been given any kind of justification apart from just being identified as being part of a group of protesters. And I mean, what's uh, what's next for you, and and how has this sort of been affecting you for the last few weeks? It's been quite a surreal experience, I guess. Uh, you know, as as a filmmaker, I'm used to being on the other side, kind of behind the camera, telling the story rather than than being the story. Yeah, it's been a bit surreal having interviews in the media. Um, so in, yeah, in some ways I feel like I'm kind of a bit of a guinea pig for, for just how far these new anti-protest laws go with, with the media. So we'll, we'll see what happens. And if there was anything you could encourage people listening to do, or um, what, what would that be if you could ask people listening, how, if there people are wondering how can, how can we possibly push back against this? I think there's... I, I kind of see a lot of talk going around that protest is now illegal. Um, I think that's kind of quite a defeatist mentality to have and, and also just not quite accurate. We haven't had our, our, our right to protest hasn't been made completely illegal. It's just that the police and the state you know, have more power to restrict those freedoms. So I think it's it's important that we still we exercise the rights that that we do still have in order to to push back and stop those rights being completely eroded. I'm kind of seeing groups that have been affected by this seem to be kind of looking at, at, at teaming up to get out on the streets together, like Republic and Just Stop Oil and Animal Rising, who all got swept up in these coronation arrests. So yeah, I think it's it's important for anyone who's who's concerned about freedom of speech, the, the right to protest, and fighting a, an increasingly authoritarian government. It's important for people to 
stand up and and resist because the moment we we kind of give in to the rhetoric that our ability to protest has been taken away then then the authoritarian state wins because yeah beyond kind of uh trying to guard you protect themselves from from criticism i think it's also this the government have seen how the the effectiveness of some protest tactics and because they're effective because they they grab attention they they bring these conflicts to to the foreground the government steps in to to try and stop that what what sort of tactics are you thinking of i think um you know tactics that that aren't new such as tactics like locking on gluing on etc which has been you know used to disrupt often kind of destructive industry to disrupt um things like the the fracking industry received a lot of direct action and blockades through people using lock on devices or disruptive actions like just stop oil and blocking oil terminals by you know gluing themselves to the road or insulate britain causing disruption and evoking this massive national conversation by gluing themselves to the motorway these are all conversations that powerful corporate industries and the government would rather weren't happening so in order to you know stop stop these conversations coming out the tactics are being being repressed so it feels because we know that obviously fossil fuel companies are very closely entwined with the conservative government so it feels like a way to try and stop people from raising these issues and raising awareness nationally one way is to try and, they're trying to clamp down on protests to make to scare people off any type of protest so that these issues sort of just go away and stop being in the spotlight yeah i mean you know inevitably if gluing on could mean that you go to prison for 51 weeks and less people are going to do it and therefore there's going to be less opportunity for activists to um raise these issues through tactics like gluing on yeah and if even sort of raising a banner at a national event could get you arrested then people are going to be uh scared to do any sort of protest even ex- you know even extremely non-aggressive ones that don't even do any property damage and i think i guess that harks back to what you said earlier and that it's important not to give in to the despair and to sort of raise awareness of why the government are introducing these laws that it's not just for public convenience that it is to try and clamp down on dissent yeah exactly it's kind of limiting the the tactics which activists can use to the point where the you know, the tactics that don't come with such heavy repression are ones that are very easy to ignore such as you know things that that can't be disruptive that can't be annoying to to, to someone or too loud etc yeah so so sort of like say oh you can sign a petition you can write to your mp but that's about it it's like that idea of sort of keeping it something that isn't public that is very private and um yeah almost the almost the individualization of protest and saying you know you can't do something in a big group that will draw public attention because that's impinging on the government's rights to keep everything nice and quiet yeah yeah exactly but um 
I think it, I think there will still be very committed activists that will still use these tactics, and then that that kind of puts the the state in a dilemma situation. Are they really going to start locking people up for taking a, a bike lock to a protest because they're cycling and they've got a history of going to protests, or are they really going to start locking people up for? sitting in the road and linking arms? Or are they going to start tackling the issues as to why people are protesting? Like the climate emergency, the expansion of the oil and gas industry. Yeah, and there is a long history of being disruptive. That is how, you know, the majority of progressive change has happened throughout history is enough people being disruptive and annoying and causing enough inconvenience to the powers that be that eventually they they win yeah thank you so much rich i think we're sort of almost running out of time but is there anything else you wanted to add i think that's it yeah uh <laughs> hope to to share a new documentary about just stop oil sometime next year Amazing. Well, please let us know when that happens and we'll have you back on. And meanwhile, people can catch um, your current documentary, Finite, The Climate of Change. People can go and find that to watch. And that tells a story of uh, activists, I think, was activists in Germany as well as in the UK. Yeah, that's right. So, um, yeah, it's screening in, in some cinemas and in communities around the UK. And if There's people, n- nothing if people, in Bristol at the moment. Um, yeah. But if people wanted to organise a community screening, if they got in contact with you, I'm sure that could be arranged. Is that right? That's right, yeah. So check out the website, finite-film.com. Amazing. Thank you so much, Rich. And yeah, good luck with everything and good luck with the um, yeah the legal processes as well. Thanks very much. And that was an interview with Rich Felgate, a journalist arrested during the coronation protests a few weeks ago. And that brings us to the end of our show, I believe. Thank you again to Danica and Rich for the interviews. Uh, That was very interesting. Thank you, our listeners, for listening. Without you, there is no show. Please do join us next week when we're going to be talking to Steve Woods, a local litter champion, as well as to a member of a new strings collective of ecologically minded musicians who are holding a beautiful strings event on the 12th of June to raise support for the Trees of Music project. That sounds really interesting, something a bit different. So do join us next week for that. Next up on BCFM is Lunchtime with Tristan B. So keep it locked to BCFM for more tunes and chat. But that's all from me, Shona Gentry, for now. So please take care. Have a good day. Look after yourselves, look after the planet and look after each other. This is the podcast version of One Love, One Planet, the award-winning environmental radio show, broadcast every Tuesday at 11am on BCFM Radio, available on 93.2 FM, on digital radio and on the BCFM website. The show was produced and presented by Shona Jemfrey. You can find us on Twitter at Shona Jemfrey and at BCFM Radio.